Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and after seeing her on Sunday, I know that if Patty Smith asked me to do pretty much anything, I would do it without question for that magnificent woman. Indeed. Mm. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I no longer have scaffolding around my building. Yay! The campaign worked. (laughs) And I'm Jen Offord, and I'm glad that I went to see Margaret Atwood instead of Jermaine Greer. Signs forever. Later on, author Marion Keyes, Mara Clark, founder of the Abortion Support Network, and Alliance for Choice Talk, hashtag repealed the eighth. Whoop, whoop. What needs to happen next, and what is still happening now? Our book guru, Anne Miller, shares her summer must-reads. And I chat to Sarah Clementson from the Centre for Action on Rape and Abuse in North Essex, ahead of our Harwich gig on June the 30th. And I do Disney's The Incredibles. But first, a feminist with feet of clay, the potential for justice, and a Kardashian in the Oval Office. I mean, a Christ in a teacup. I just give up. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're slightly more up to date with the news than some journalists' wives. <laughs> Just slightly. <laughs> Let's chat the Arbar hoo-ha. To be clear, I'm not calling it that to in any way diminish the racism Roseanne Barr demonstrated when, in a tweet, she compared Valerie Jarrett, a black former advisor to Barack Obama, to an ape, and also jokes, in inverted commas, that Jarrett had ties to the Muslim Brotherhood, a tweet that led to ABC cancelling the revival of her self-titled sitcom. No, I simply like saying the Arbar hoo-ha, and in fact I'm thinking of making it into a dance. But back to the matter in hand, a matter that Barr seems determined to keep making worse. First up was her defence that sleeping pills made her racist. I mean, fair enough, once after a bottle of night nurse, I tried to invade Poland. Which is true, except it isn't. Then, despite a seemingly very contrite apology, stating her comment was indefensible and a pledge to leave Twitter... Barr remains there, keeping an eye on her mentions and defending her initial tweet to strangers, which is a fail-safe way to piss all over your sorry. This may seem odd to say, but I'm gutted, and not just for the cast and crew now out of a job, or because so many people don't seem to get the drastic difference between racism and swearing, but because Barr, through Roseanne the sitcom, provided a fierce working-class female voice and depicted a complicated blue-collar family that shattered taboos about, well, pretty much everything. Sorry, I was just nodding, which doesn't really uh, go well on podcasts. You can't see Hannah's face, but it's not happy. No, it's you know when we were at um, Latitude, and we talked about a female character that you identified with when you were younger, and I said, "Darling Connor," and it got a massive cheer. And I wonder now what would happen if I said that again mm-hmm. in public, because it's tainted the entire brand this last week so dramatically yeah she's following actually, Hannah's lead I'm also nodding which doesn't work on a podcast she's an absolute prick isn't she because her co-stars quite rightly said we this isn't us we we don't yeah. think that and then she tweeted them back like well oh, cheers for throwing me under the bus like well I mean you did that yourself didn't you kind of really. rolled yourself under that yeah. bus yeah Donald Trump of course called for Roseanne to be cancelled mm-hmm. Oh, no, wait, that was Samantha B, who incited the wrath of everyone and their aunt, brackets, the racist ones, when she called Ivanka Trump a feckless cunt on her Wednesday night show. While the rest of Twitter rushed to point out the inaccuracy in the statement as cunts have depth and warmth, fewer pointed out that it's the word feckless that's wrong here, given it suggests it's not deliberate, rather than she's actually a calculating cunt. Mm-hmm. B apologised for using the, I'm going to call it totally justified <laughs> statement, 
in a segment about a crisis in which children of immigrants are being separated from their parents. I'm wondering if the best use of the first daughter's time was tweeting pictures of her and her son. And as for this idea that it's not feminist to call another woman a cunt, we need to stop that right now. Women who show no solidarity with other women can't expect to be one of the girls when the time suits them. If it's unfeminist to call Ivanka Trump a cunt, then it's unfeminist to call Margaret Thatcher a cunt. And I will not live in a world where I can't do that. Here, here. Mm. I've got like a little one of those clackety things in agreement with Hannah. Crank out the foam fingers. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Feckless cunt. <laughs> Have someone's eye out with that. <laughs> Feminist landmark turned massive attention seeker Jermaine Greer landed herself in hot water last week after making some deeply unfeminist statements about rape. Speaking at the Hay Literature Festival, that's hard to say, isn't it? (laughs) Greer spoke about the need for society to change the way it looked at rape in order to increase the rate of convictions. So far, so good, right? Yep. She added that most rapes weren't spectacularly violent, which, again, I'd agree with on the basis of anecdotal evidence, if by non-violent she means not, like, actually beaten up at the same time the dude penetrated their body without permission. Most rapes don't involve any injury whatsoever, she said, which I suppose depends on your definition of injury, right? Mm. Yeah. Then sounding like the half-wit... From the Jim Davidson School of Am I Right Though, who you once ended up exchanging messages with on Tinder, Greer said most rapes were just bad sex, really, before dismissing the idea that victims of this non-violent rape might be traumatised. I sort of want to do an Australian accent now, but I'm going to stop myself. What the hell are you saying, she said. Something that leaves no sign, no injury, no nothing, is more damaging to a woman than seeing your best friend blown up by an IED. I mean... It's not a competition, Jermaine. It's they, a, it's, they are options. It's, a, but it's an interesting <laughs> comparison, isn't it? I would imagine, and feel free to correct me, Twitter, if I'm wrong, that actually proportionally more women are raped than soldiers see their best friends blown I, up by IEDs. Well, yes, I, I would say the statistics would indicate that. But, um, I mean, she did say there's there's more quotes I could go into but there is only so long you can bear to stare at your laptop screaming to be honest Uh, so Red does have a point in a way now stick with me on this stick with me we do need to change how we think about rape and we do need to distinguish between rapes where women are dragged off the street beaten and left for dead and rapes where a teenager has sex with another teenager who is unable for whatever reason to give her consent for exactly the same reasons to gain convictions and to teach young men that sex without permission is rape, regardless of the circumstance, and diminishing the experiences of victims of rape is clearly not the way to do this. Which leads neatly into the news that finally, finally, charges have been brought against monumental spaffer Harvey Weinstein. Since allegations of sexual... Ho- sexual? Sexual... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this is not the time to get sexy gen behaviours that <laughs> um, Since allegations of sexual harassment and assault first began pouring in back in October, the disgraced media mogul has spent the majority of his time in some sort of sex addiction rehab clinic in Arizona, presumably wandering around in his grubby bathrobe, waiting for the time he can slip back into business as normal. Because will no one think of the men's ruined careers? Guys... Guys, I was just thinking of those poor pot plants in Arizona. <laughs> to be honest, oh. it's a very arid state. 
That rehabilitation looks very unlikely to happen now he's moved from the court of opinion to the court of law. About fucking time. Weinstein has been indicted on rape and criminal sex act charges, with the first hearing set for June the 5th, which is yesterday, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, and tomorrow at the time of recording. Weinstein's principal lawyer, Ben Braffman, is arguing that bad publicity around his client will affect a potential jury. And sure, unless you've been living under a rock, possibly with creatures with more moral gumption than Weinstein and his lawyer, you'll have heard all about the allegations, which Weinstein continues to deny. Will there be a conviction, though? I don't know. Rape cases ending in a conviction don't have a great hit rate, as in only about 5.7% of reported rapes end in conviction. And clearly this is bullshit. Who knows, maybe the court will take an Aunt Lydia, sorry, Jermaine Greer approach, and Weinstein will just be given a slap on the wrist and a sticker that says, I've been a bad boy, soz, which he has to wear for like a week. But let's hope that for once justice is properly served. Where is he being tried? New York City. If they try him in the centre of New York, I think they got a lot better chance of getting mm. a conviction than if they managed to move it to a different court out in the suburbs. But if the trial of O.J. Simpson has taught us anything, well. it's that if you've got the money to pay for incredible morality-free lawyers, then you're probably going to get off until you attempt an ill-fated armed robbery later mm. on in life. I don't know, though. I mean, you would hope that perhaps... Brave New World and all of that. Yeah, again, I cross my fingers, which again isn't great for a podcast, but yeah, absolutely. Should we take a look at the world of the media? Please, let's move on from mm. Weinstein. Well, in a week where Richard Maidley became our toughest <laughs> political journalist, no, but really, you'd think there wasn't anything left to say. But hold up, there is more. Anyone still questioning the thinking behind giving a former Chancellor of the Exchequer the editorship of a newspaper, so all journalists, basically, mm-hmm. will have been interested in news from the evening No Standards... <laughs> And that news is, Google are the greatest company in the history of the world ever. Thank fuck, they're finally following the big stories. Oh yes, George Osborne has denied claims that companies were offered positive coverage in its news pages in return for half a million quid. And not just any companies. Google, Uber, all the good guys. The story first appeared on the media website Open Democracy, which said it had seen reports that the deal was pitched to customers as a quotes, money can't buy opportunity, which is an oxymoron to rival Brexit planning. In case you're out there wondering whether this sort of thing happens all the time in the industry, let this statement, and indeed the combined outrage of politicians and journalists across the country, make it clear it really fucking doesn't. And you know, in case you're thinking you'd be able to spot a puff piece for Uber a mile off, it's not the positive reporting you need to worry about so much as the absence of negative reporting. Mm-hmm. The controversial project called London 2020 was due to launch in the summer of 2020, as the name suggests, which, if you're looking for a positive, means that at least a few people thought newspapers might still exist in two years' time. That is the one silver lining there. Mm-hmm. Back in the news this week, is she ever out of it, was Kim Kardashian West, reality TV star, entrepreneur and activist? That's right, the world spun off its fucking axis last week when the woman who wants women not to bother eating and instead hashtag suck it was pictured at the White House next to reality TV star, entrepreneur and president... Kardashian West met husband Kanye's NBF to discuss prison reform. No, really. 
and the plight of Alice Marie Johnson, a 63-year-old who has spent more than a third of her life incarcerated for a first-time non-violent drug offence. Sounds reasonable, right? Yep. Yep, sure. Johnson is now 22 years into her life sentence. I don't know what life sentence means in America. I don't know if it means like your whole life or... Um, but. Well, for for a first offence... I mean, it's a long old time, a, isn't it? If it was a third offence, it would actually mean life because they have the three strikes and you're out rule, don't they? So it would actually mean life. But if it's only a first offence, it might just mean just until she's so old that they just let her out. I mean, she's, she's 63, but... Kardashian became interested in the case after seeing a video about Johnson on social media and she's paid for a legal team for her. You could see Donny J almost was his pants with glee as he hailed the good meeting on Twitter. While the rest of us wondered what else we could glean from KKW's serious face other than self-inflicted facial paralysis. I thought she needed the toilet. That's what she looked like. Should we be... I don't know. I feel like... Should I be mean about it? Like, she is doing a good thing. I mean, she's a she's a... Clearly think, a wanker. I don't but. think the leader of the free will should be taking um, advice on this. No, I agree. A good I thing agree. to do would be to say, I'm sure, Donald, there's better qualified people to talk about <laughs> this than me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Anyone fancy some good news? Has there been any good news? Please. Well, let's head across the Irish Sea, where having got rid of the barbaric Eighth Amendment, the Emerald Isles women have set their sights on another bit of constitution being removed. Please and thank you. Commonly known as the, quote woman in the home clause, its existence, in the words of Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald, constitutionally relegates women to second-class citizenship. Yeah, that nonsense could jog on, right? In fairness, Article 41.2 is a constitutional dead letter, given it has no legal implications in contemporary Ireland. But there's no doubt it's archaic and sexist language, and its very existence undermines women. A referendum could take place as early as October, although it'd be a good idea to get the abortion legislation passed first, eh? Yes, please. And hooray, Ireland. Whoop, whoop. Indeed. More news next week. Probably more news than you can handle. Yeah. <laughs> this week's <laughs> Too much go news, by. my head hurts. Yeah. What's that stabbing me? Oh, fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing cutting this out. For the benefit just of the listeners, Hannah's just pulled 15 crowns. I just thought, for my tit really hurts, but I've been... I've got, I've got money down there and it's... That money is sharp. Yeah, it's new money. It's new and slippery. Yeah, yeah it's quite bouncy. <laughs> it's very like Hannah's hey. tits. <laughs> <laughs> sharp. Slippery and bouncy. <laughs> and now sexism of the way. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we try really hard not to be sexist, but ultimately have to concede you're actually a bit shit and sadly our hands are tied. Thank God you finally said it, Jen. Yeah, well, we're all thinking it. That's why FTSE 350 chairman and chief execs across the land made themselves look like an absolute band of bellends this week after the Hampton Alexander Review reported excuses they had been given as to the lack of appointments of women at director level. Would you like to hear some of I'm, them? I'm feeling fairly confident today, so if you could knock that back, that would be grand, thanks. Shareholders aren't bothered by the makeup of the board, so why should we be? I mean, there's a simple answer to that, which is the country's lawmakers have asked you to be bothered about it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, OK. I can't appoint a woman just because I want to. Well, you, you very much can. Yeah. Yeah. Most women don't want the hassle. All the money, right? They yeah. definitely don't want the money. Okay, yeah, and this is my personal favourite. All the good women have already been snapped up. I mean, the man's got a point. Karen Brady is already taken. Mm. 
Um, 27.7% of FTSE 100 boardrooms are now female. The rest of you, you are just not up to it, soz. But in fairness, let's look at the pricks setting the example here. That's right, Her Majesty's Treasury, who last week appointed the only man on its shortlist of candidates to fill a vacancy on its interest rate setting committee. That's hard to say as well. Of which, eight of its nine members are men. And in fairness to them, men have been doing a fucking excellent job of running the country's financial institutions recently, haven't they? So yeah. why would you? Why yeah. would you? I mean, I, it's going really well. Why would you want to fuck that up? No, don't no. rock the boat. And also, you're going to have to get like some sort of sanitary bins in the toilet. That's inconvenient. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. really hard work. Terrifying. Yeah. Um, and as, as demonstrated, we all know that women just keep money in their bras. They don't, yeah. just, don't know what to do with money. They just tuck it in their bras. Tuck it in their bras. Yeah. Forget about it. Yeah, yeah. Fucking hell, imagine if you, you'd have brought down the global economy, Hannah. Uh-huh. You just had it all in your bra. <laughs> For ages, I thought Hannah was stacked, but she's just some sort of walking <laughs> piggyback. I'm here with... Sarah Clemenson, the manager of CARA, which is the Centre for Action on Rape and Abuse, a charity that will be raising some money for a forthcoming in-conversation gig at the Mighty Harwich Festival. More details on that coming up. So can you tell me a little bit about how you came to exist and why you came to exist and, and what the need for CARA is? Yeah, Sakara was formed um, 29 years ago now by a group of amazing women that there was a lack of services in the Colchester area. So they decided to start their own and it was literally started in a broom cupboard of an old hospital and has grown steadily since then. So today we're, we cover North and Mid-Essex, so we've really expanded the reach of our work. So we offer specialist one-to-one counselling support, we offer advocacy support and ISFA service, which is support through the criminal justice process, as well as social groups and other kind of holistic and creative activities. It's really important to recognise that sexual violence is a gender-based crime. Um, it, it happens and can happen to anyone, but the vast majority of our clients, 91%, are female. So it, that does really underline the, the gender-based nature. We have a quarter of our clients who are young people, so in the 18 to 24 bracket. And over the last few years, our referrals are are rising steadily. Last financial year to our centre, we received 1,214 referrals. We now regularly um, receive over 100 referrals a month. We work in partnership with the two other rape crisis centres in Essex. So across Essex, in the last quarter alone, we had over 3,000 referrals. So it's a huge number of people accessing our services. The challenge for rape crisis centres generally is to protect our specialism. Um, We've all been working in this field for decades now and to it's really important that specialism is recognized and in terms of funding it's really tricky to keep maintaining the funding to to not just keep the services going but we need to grow we need you know the demand far outweighs what we're able to provide so 
all centres need to grow and to be given that financial stability to be able to do so. It's really difficult at the moment in all sectors, but in terms of commissioning models and absolutely. And so that that's really impacting on, on centres generally. So when you say support for the legal service, do you mean so if you were involved in a case against someone? Or no, so that's if um, if a one of our service users has decided to report what's happened to right. them to the police, mm-hmm. um, we can offer independent um, specialist support. So that's help navigating that criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. We can also do informed choice um, sessions with people who may be not sure whether to report or not that decision is obviously always left up to that individual but we can kind of give them an idea of what that if they do decide to report what the process is likely to be how is the legal system for so we find that nationally just to tell you um cara is also a member of rape crisis england and wales So we're part of a network of specialist support services around the country. We're all completely autonomous, but we've got that kind of umbrella support and support between centres. So it also means we can collate national statistics, which is really important. Sexual violence is an area that is otherwise um, there's not. A huge amount of data on. We've discovered that nationally around 20% of our service users choose to report to the police so that's the vast majority never report mm. which can be for a variety of different reasons. In Essex last year 12% of reported rapes made it to court. Oh my goodness. So it's so the 20% reported and then 12% of the 20% actually made yeah. it as far as court. And 6% resulted in a conviction. We, we work really closely with Essex Police on um, those statistics and where improvements can be made. It's also looking at the criminal justice system in general. There's a lot of improvements that could be made for sexual violence cases. That we work with other rape crisis centres to try and gain a bit of momentum and to work on campaigns to make those changes. But it's a really complicated justice system to try and provoke change. The statistics that I remember seeing from rape crisis, I think, is something like one in five women between the age of 16 and 59 or something like that experience sexual violence in their lifetime. And that, I assume, is just reported. Yeah, referrals that come into CARA are growing year on year and that's reflected nationally as well. So more survivors are accessing our services, which is absolutely fantastic. But we're really aware that we reach, you know, a tiny percentage of survivors out there. And I think that's the really worrying thought that there's a lot of survivors who just aren't aware that there are specialist support services out there. And that can be to work through experiences or clients may come to us and never actually speak about what's happened to them. When survivors come in here, what sort of impact do their experiences have on their lives? A huge range of impacts and there can be really short-term impacts um, or long-term impacts. The majority of our service users are survivors of childhood sexual abuse, so they may have actually lived with that experience for many years and something has come to a point where they feel ready to 
to seek support services. And they will obviously be living with a whole range of long-term impacts and effects of that sexual violence. For more recent events, there's then a, a different range of impacts that that, person, that individual will be living with. So we're really here to listen and to everything is really kind of focused on what is right for that individual. You said that like, the number of people coming to you year on year is increasing. Is that because there is an increase in cases or just, or do you think it's because the situation is improving in terms of survivors feel more able mm. to come forward? We would say it's down to an increase in awareness of sexual violence. I think that it's an area that has historically just really not been spoken about and that's still true today to some extent it's a very difficult crime to acknowledge and the impacts of acknowledging that are far-reaching and I think that high-profile cases have really helped survivors to realise that it isn't just them that's experienced this and how far-reaching those affected by sexual violence are and have encouraged them to come forward and seek support. It's difficult to say if there's an increase in the actual incidence of sexual violence. I'd be inclined to say no. It's it's that this has always been, a, unfortunately, a really endemic crime and it's, it is people being feeling in a place to, mm -hmm. to come and seek support and being aware that there are support services out there. The Me Too campaign was yeah. quite recent sort of in response to all the allegations in Hollywood about um, Harvey Weinstein and I wonder because there is you know an element of kind of shame attached to sexual violence mm -hmm. for, for the victims of sexual violence obviously quite unfairly so but what kind of impact does that have? What does that mean to someone to sort of see, like, you know, a movie star or mm. some, someone who appears to have a whole world at their disposal coming forward and saying, actually, this has happened to me as well? Yeah, I think there's, there's a whole load of myths surrounding sexual violence. There's a whole load of victim blaming around sexual violence. And I think that they're really ingrained in society. I think high-profile campaigns like Me Too have potentially helped victims and survivors to realise that it isn't just them. And I think as society wider that this can happen to absolutely anyone. It's not a certain segment of society that these crimes happen to. It can happen to anyone. <clears throat> we notice that whenever there's high-profile media coverage of cases we have a spike in our referrals. So it, it does impact on people, something happening that people recognise that this is something that's talked about. There are support services. But yeah, so I think it, the Me Too campaign is really positive. Anything that encourages society widely to talk about sexual violence and acknowledge its existence, acknowledge its reach, is, is really positive. I felt at the time when this was happening that a lot of people, as well as the ones saying, I'm absolutely heartbroken to see all of your experiences, you know, kind of laid bare, quite a lot of people saying, well, you know, pat on the arse or whatever is not the same as, as rape. Those experiences, mm -hmm. though, they're still important, right? They still contribute? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a whole spectrum of sexual violence under its broad umbrella term and you know that pat on the bum or uh, 
a group in a club is is part of that conversation no one's equating that to a violent rape but there it's part of the picture of misogyny of ingrained patriarchal views on women and it's it reflects how women are viewed in society and I think it, I completely agree that as women there's a certain we grow up with this stuff that we're you know we have all sort of strategies around this stuff I think for men it felt like that was a bit of a watershed kind of moment of them sort of waking up or a lot of males I know waking up and actually having that conversation with female friends or family members or whoever and just that this does happen to us as women that there were also a lot of debates around you know how can someone be equating a, a tap on the knee to other forms of sexual violence it's and it's about exactly it? it's exactly that yeah. it's about that power dynamic it's about manipulation coercive behavior control and and the situation within which those that's happening that behavior is happening so i think it it was uncomfortable for a lot of people and it and it makes people wonder about their own behaviours in the past. I think which you know could, that they may not have recognised as being inappropriate, and it kind of draws attention onto that, which yeah, know, can be difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I think. Yeah. What can people do if they've experienced sexual violence? What kind of help is available for them? And also, what can you do to help someone who you think or know has been a victim of sexual violence? So if you have experienced sexual violence yourself the first thing is to remember you're not alone that you are in no way to blame for this that it's not your fault and that there are people out here who are completely independent specialists who are here to listen to you who will believe you who will are just here to offer whatever services may be what you require at this time if it's something that's happened really recently, um, try and get yourself safe. If there is a friend or family member that you feel comfortable and able to talk to, then give them a ring or, or ask to see them just to share that with them. But if you don't have anyone like that in your life or don't feel comfortable talking to someone, there is a National Rape Crisis Helpline. The number's on the Rape Crisis website. On there, you can also find your nearest rape crisis centre. So you can look up that information and give that individual centre a call. In terms of if you're supporting someone, it's really important to listen and to let them talk and to be really patient as well. Some people will find it quite easy to speak about what's happened to them. Some people might be quite sort of disjointed from what's happened or some people might find that incredibly hard and actually if they've chosen to speak to you about it they're placing real trust in you so be respectful of that don't ever tell them what to do you don't know how you would act in that situation our brain has many different coping strategies and that are beyond our control of, of how we react in certain situations so don't put your own expectations onto someone however they've reacted has been what is right for them to get them out of that situation safely remember that it's not their fault and believe them they're really the most important thing so 
never asked them why they did that or why they didn't do this or why they didn't tell anyone sooner and don't judge them also remember to look after yourself as well it can be really difficult hearing about things in this nature and if you need support yourself you can call confidentially again the rape crisis national helpline and they can offer you confidential support around that but don't break that person's confidence don't go talking to another friend Mm -hmm. or family member unless you have their permission to do so what can people do to help you and other other centres such as if you are thinking of setting yourselves a challenge and want to find a charity to kind of support through that it'd be amazing if you considered a rape crisis centre as I say there is a list on um, the rape crisis website of centres in your area if you would like to donate anything it doesn't have to be money it could be time or you might want to get involved in the activism side of stuff then I'm sure again any centre would really welcome that um, we're in the process of setting up an activism group because a lot of our service users after they've kind of gone through the process and finished with our support services feel really empowered to and they really want to do something which is amazing and I think we all feel like that that we want to go out and shout about stuff and get a bit kind of angry and you know passionate about stuff so we're in the process of setting up an activism group we're looking to run um the first reclaim the night in essex this year so yeah again if anyone want to get involved in that that'd be amazing but just to help speak about sexual violence to make it visible it's quite a hidden crime and we want to kind of be out there and making people understand how many people this impacts on so yeah if you want to come and get a bit shouty with us and get in touch where can we find you on the internet so our website is www.caraessex.org.uk um, and rape crisis is rapecrisis.org.uk. And you are on the Twitter. We are on the Twitter. We are at Cara Essex. So, yeah, come and say hi and, um, yeah, make contact. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sarah. That's all right. No problem. Thanks for having us. Hello there. We are joined by the one, the only, the marvellous Anne Miller. Hey. Hello there. Hello. She's brought in a big bag of books. I have, I have. I brought you three. Can three. I tell Anne something while she's here? I bought my mum for Mother's Day yeah. three things about Elsie. Yeah. And she told me to say thank you to you because she absolutely oh. loved it. And she's now reading something about sheep and... Goats and, goats and sheep? That's it. Yes, perfect. Also, um, the other one you did... What was the other one? Eleanor Elephant. Elephant. Yeah. Loads of my mates read it and they said it was amazing. That Eleanor Elephant is so it's out in paperback now and it's having like a real it's been in the charts for like eight weeks. Like it's selling it is like really loads. Good it's so good. So, so good. good. That's how good Anne's recommended. I'm glad. It'd be really yeah. awkward if your mum hated it. Well, I, I had did to come in. immediately when I gave it to <laughs> it was her. Really funny <laughs> immediately when I, I, I wrapped it up and I was like, oh, hey, happy Mother's Day. And I gave it to her and she was like, what's it about? And I said, I was about an old lady who might be going mad. <laughs> and I was like, I just put the kettle on. <laughs> I didn't. I, maybe I should have picked something else, but she did love it. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. Well, hopefully these will. Do you think which one would you like first? Well, we've suggested holiday books, and one of them is doorstop yeah. size. Yeah, it is. So this is the Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton. It is a big beast of a hardback. It's pretty. How many pages is it? It is about five hundred pages. 
but it is glorious. I just had a week's holiday, and this is the book that I took out to the deck chair, to the balcony, on trips, wherever we went. I was lugging it around, and I read it in about two days, I think. Um, would have been faster, but I had to be sociable. But it is glorious. It's basically... Your biceps look uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah, I've been carrying these hardbacks. Yeah. Um, so this is basically all the best elements of an Agatha Christie murder mystery. Ah, hence the kind of Art Deco-looking yeah, cover. Yeah, the gorgeous okay. cover. But... It's a very 21st century, possibly beyond version. So basically, this is a, bear with me, this is a time-hopping, body-swapping mystery mm-hmm. novel. So Evelyn Hardcastle dies. That is announced from the title. It's not a spoiler. And she is going to keep dying until your narrator, you, figure out who did it. So every day, you're going to relive this murder as a different person in the house. So there's all your classic um, Christie characters. There's a, a butler and the socialites and there's the heiress and the, all the, uh, the art, in-residence artist and you play as a different person until you figure out what's happened. So you oh, can gather fun. different information and they jump the days around so you don't know who you are and what's going on and your character has no idea what's going on and why, why, why are you being different people? How does that work? You are a big Agatha Christie fan, Yeah, aren't you? I love Agatha Christie. But I think I might like this more. Oh, wow. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure, choose-your-own-murderer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. which I also love. <laughs> um, but just because, no, I love Christie's, but I think, I mean, there are so many, but once you have read so many, they are essentially very similar. And this is very, very updated. Are you guys Christie fans? Yeah, I quite like I, I like Marple. I read a lot when I was younger. I read loads. And uh, actually, we studied one. I studied crime fiction as like oh, nice. part of my syllabus at university and it was fascinating and of course we did a Christie and like P.D. James and stuff. Yeah, I don't know, Poirot never really did it for me but I, I do I, I mean that's the dream isn't it that you just mm. get old and become like this massive busybody who, who, <laughs> who just solves crimes and just says whatever the fuck she likes to people and nobody thinks it's rude because you found who murdered their uncle yeah, so was grateful. or something. Yeah. Actually, though, I think one of my favourite things about Christie was when, because I do really like the mirror crack from side to side, mm. was when I found out that that's kind of true it's actually based on a true story. Oh, yeah. That was the very first Christie I ever read. Oh, really? I can't really tell you how it's true because it would spoil it for you if you wanted to read it. But, but the, when you the, finish reading it... Yeah, the Google, thing that Google becomes it. the motive yeah. happened. Sounds bonkers, but happened in real life. A, a tiny tangent, but on a Christie tip. Yeah. Have you ever seen the film Murder by Death? No. Which is a spoof film from probably the mid-80s, early 80s, mid-80s, that I was obsessed with as a child. I'd watch it like two or three times in a day. And it's basically got all of her different sort of detectives. So there's a Poirot character. Peter Sellers plays basically a Siamese cat from a Disney film, which is why I've gone off it. It's incredibly racist. But Peter Falk's in it as the Humphrey Bogart type character. And Truman Capote's in it as well. And there's like talking moose heads. And it's just a spoof of all of the Christie tropes. And if it wasn't for the blatant Siamese cat racism, I'd recommend it because it's very funny. Actually, if we're on that, Hmm. this season of Urban Urban Myths has a retelling of the disappearance of Agatha Christie. Oh, when she went to Harrogate. Christie was a bit of a dick when she took herself off to Harrogate. She kind of basically tried to frame her husband for her murder. And then just, he just left her for a different woman. Yeah, I've, and which is harsh, but still don't well, frame them for murder. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jen's like, oh, yeah, yeah, do that. Oh, this reminds me. So there was a brilliant thing I found a few years ago where, so 
when she disappeared, and she was just, I think, in a hotel, and she's she like, what is a couple? In her again. Oh, good, good information. The press reported it, and they ran photos of her with like they mocked up disguises on her, so she had like a hat and like different <laughs> costumes. Because they're like, now remember, Miss Christie does know a lot about disguises and about most mysteries, <laughs> so be aware. And they ran all these photos. Amazing, like so, a guess who with the same woman. Yeah, just in, <laughs> a, in a, the same is woman. She in glasses. <laughs> yes, <laughs> she, she got a wig on. No. Yeah, another oh, one I saw didn't have glasses, so it couldn't okay, have been her. Could have been her. Could have been her. Yeah, but this is really fun, and it's big, but you will fly through it, and it's just. I'll read you the the. Blurb. And it's another book with a woman's name in the title. Is that is that going to be? You know, when after the girl on the train, every book yes. suddenly became called the girl on or the girl near or the girl by. Uh, <laughs> uh, and they're all E's. Three things about Elsie, Evelyn Hardcastle, Eleanor Oliphant. Yeah, yeah. This is the Explorer coming up next. It's not a name, but you know, you never know. May I read you the blurb for, yes, for Evelyn? Okay. Somebody's going to be murdered at the ball tonight. It won't appear to be a murder, and so the murderer won't be caught. Rectify that injustice, and I'll show you the way out. Ooh. Ooh. So I love a book that's a call to arms. Yeah. And so you're trying to solve it as well, of course. And it just gets more and more and more complicated. Did you and solve it? No. <laughs> I did finish it, so I know the solution, but no, no, nowhere near. Would have been sad. If you guys get it, I'm going to ask you next time. Okay. Mm, challenge. So this is uh, Sophie Kingzella, who wrote the Chopaholic, or still, still writes, writes the Chopaholic series. And this is one of her standalone books. It is called My Not-So-Perfect Life. And it's just glorious. It's, um, you know, you'll see why it's relatable. It opens with somebody who's moved from the country, uh, from Somerset, down to live in London to have this, you know, big London life. And she's always wanted to live in London. But it opens with London rush hour in the morning and the... Uh, not quite so dreamlike reality that that can mm. present. Um, there's a bit where like, very early on, she um, the train pulls to a stop in a tunnel and she goes flying forward and ends up uh, falling onto a stranger's cheese panini and landing on it, like mouth around the sandwich and then having to try and extract herself. Like, oh, I wasn't trying to eat your... No, I know there's weirdos on the tube, but it's not... Like, <laughs> they just stopped the train, it's not me. <laughs> and basically it's about the way that Instagram presents these perfect lives and then what your actual reality mm. is. So it's very good to read at the moment when everybody everybody knows that Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and social media is everyone's public life but you always compare it to your private side and we know we shouldn't but if you see someone like on a beach and you think oh that's great you don't think oh they probably had to walk for miles and they got bitten or you don't see that and this is about showing the other side of the pictures the reality yeah yeah the Kardashian rabbit hole we've talked about this before I don't think she likes it when you call it that <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to read us the blurb? Um, yes, I'll read you the blurb. Katie Brenner has the perfect life, a flat in London, a glamorous job, and a super cool Instagram feed. Okay, so the truth is that she rents a tiny room with no space for a wardrobe, has a hideous commute to a lowly admin job, and the life she shares on Instagram isn't really hers. But one day, her dreams are bound to come true, aren't they? Until her not-so-perfect life comes crashing down when her mega-successful boss Demeter gives her the sack. All Katie's hopes are shattered. She has to move home to Somerset, where she helps her dad with his new glamping business. But then Demeter and her family book in for a week's holiday and Katie sees her chance. But should she get revenge on the woman who ruined her dreams or try to get her job back? Does Demeter, the woman who has everything, actually have such an idyllic life herself? Maybe they have more in common than it seems. And what's wrong with Not So Perfect anyway? Agreed. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I don't think it's Instagram that happens on. People quite often say to me, oh, you, like, oh, you're probably really busy this weekend. You're probably doing something really exciting. And you're like, yeah, I'm cleaning cat sick from under my bed. <laughs> That's like... <laughs> 
thrill a minute. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, yes, I do sometimes get to go on stage with Kathy Burke, but I yeah. have to do the same rubbish yeah, that everybody do else does. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. it. People say, oh, your job's quite glamorous. I'm like, well, I'd say 5% of it is fairly glamorous and, yeah. and cool. And I absolutely, I've got my dream job. I love it. But 95% is me sat in my pyjamas covered in cat hair or yeah. actual cats. With the, with the blanket cape. Yeah. Eating bread out of the bag. I mean, that yeah, sounds that kind of perfect like, to me. Cats, yeah. blankets and bread. Like, you should yeah. see our... Um, What's it, Dylan Moran's meetings? Um, eating bread and dipping it in anything runnier than bread. <laughs> <laughs> but this is also really nice because with the setup, you sort of think you might... There's quite a few books that have similar premises, but I really like the way this one is handled and it's really funny and it's gloriously written and it makes you feel good about stuff rather than feeling like hit on the head with, no, you shouldn't be on social media. It's just done in a really refreshing, fun way. I have a, a, a fear that I would like you to assage, please, yeah. about that book, which is, is it pitting women against each other no yes well it may appear that way but it does hence my question no yeah. no that's the glory of it is that it's it starts off in a way that you've heard many stories before but this takes it in a really nice direction and it i will i don't want to i really want to tell you the ending but i'm not going to but if you finish it we'll have a part two of the conversation lovely stuff thanks very much final book which actually out of all three of them looks like the one that you could fit in your carry on yes you could and also this is actually um this is a book for nine to 12 year olds so it's a quick read but it is the most beautiful book it's called the explorer by Catherine rundell it's beautifully written it's also beautifully presented the cover is glorious mm. and it has these illustrations um alongside the text so that you're because it's set in the rainforest so you've got all these like um like beautiful oh they are so it's beautiful. a really nice present as well so Catherine rundell is um children's writer and also she's a um, an all souls scholar at oxford and she wrote a book a few years ago called Rooftoppers, which is about these children who lived on the rooftops in Paris. And that won the Waterson's Children's Award in 2014. And so you win a prize pot when you win that. And she used the money to go to the Amazon to go like, on a research trip. And then she wrote this book based off that trip. And this book won the Costa Children's Award, which is a really nice, it's pleasing... Like self-perpetuating mm. cycle. Yeah, it? it's yeah. great. So hopefully this one, she'll come back and I don't know win whatever the next yeah. one from the costa is it's brilliant it's about four children uh they're in a plane a small plane which crashes in the amazon rainforest and they have to learn to survive themselves the pilot doesn't make it and so you're left with the oldest fred who sort of is obsessed with explorers and adventure and wants to get on and see things con who basically is not really that fast to be there and kind of wants just to go home and then there's lilla and max who are siblings and max is the little one and it, because it was based on a real trip, there's some just beautiful descriptions. There's a bit where they they have to learn to make a raft, and when they're on the raft, they see pink dolphins swimming by. Uh, they learn to eat grubs. They uh, pick which tree, and both of their children, so they pick which tree to make the toilet, and they call it the lava tree. Mm-hmm. Um, they see they end up adopting a sloth as a pet, which is obviously ah. life goals. <laughs> <laughs> they um, and there's a bit where they see monkeys sort of wash the descriptions of them washing their hands in ants. And they're watching them thinking, what are they, that's weird, what are they doing? And then the monkey with the ant sort of boxing gloves on goes over to some bees and takes the honey because the smell of the ants puts off the bees so you don't get stung. And they're like, and so if I'm ever in the rainforest, fact. I'm oh going to, it's really, it's going to be a really specific type of ant. If you get the wrong one, they'll, they'll yeah, die. But yeah, yeah, I yeah. like the idea of washing your hands in ants and then going to get honey. And it's sort of kids, you know, fully on their own in the jungle learning to survive. And then they find an old map and a sardine can. And they're like, oh, why is there a sardine can in the middle of nowhere? Maybe someone else is around. And then they start exploring. That's I want to read that. Yeah, that it's really, really You quite nice. often read young adult books and children's books. Yes, yeah, I read every, every yeah. age, every genre. Yeah, whatever, whatever the best stories are. 
I think YA and kids books, especially YA at the moment, is just so varied. So if you want to read like historical or you know uh, fantasy or real life or this everything is there and it's the quality of it is incredible and they tackle really big subjects we spoke to claire hennessy who's an irish author when Mm. we were over doing our podcast about repeal the eighth and she's written a book called like other girls Mm. and it's about abortion yeah and about not being like other girls and being that sort of misfit but being all right with that yeah and the stuff that she's covering is really meaty yeah and it's a good way to talk about it with kids i guess it's a bit like um Balding's book, Claire Balding's book about the racehorse. Yeah, the racehorse that wouldn't gallop. I think there's two now, isn't there? There's three. So I think you're actually I mean, the second one couldn't yeah. jump. There's one, there's the one that couldn't gallop, there's one that disappeared, and I don't know what the... There's one that couldn't tie its shoelaces. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, that's about, like, that's about loads of... It's meant for, like, quite young kids, I think, but the main character's a girl with a confusingly androgynous name, and... Um, and she it's all about like body image and stuff like that and sport and like yeah it's really it's brilliant it's it's really good i really enjoyed it i think the funny thing for ya for people who aren't teenagers now is that it didn't it's a more it it doesn't it didn't exist as much when some people were younger yeah so sort of like when i was a teenager we had Jacqueline Wilson up to a point they're slightly younger but they're some of the older ones like the Girls in Love series and there was Louise Renison which is brilliant but there wasn't what there is now in terms of just like there was Judy Bloom when we were oh Judy Bloom yes Judy Bloom Judy Bloom and Nancy Drew Nancy Drew were kind of the good women characters yeah. or young girls. There were a handful and yeah, now there's there now there are bookshelves full and there's just yeah. I read a book recently um by Sarah Barnard who's a YA, YA author called Goodbye Perfect and it's about per, uh, teacher student relationships but it's told from the perspective of the best friend so her her perfect best friend uh, runs off with a teacher and it's all about the friend who's left behind and her working out like what to do and how to handle it. And that is I mean not so that, and then you can't really do that well you could but it'd be harder doing that in an adults book because mm. that's a teenager story. Excellent recommendations as ever. Thank Good you. Good recommending. Mm. Uh, thank <laughs> well you. Done. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming in. No worries. Thanks for having me. Hello, Mickey here. At the time of recording this, an emergency parliamentary debate about abortion reform in Northern Ireland has just ended. It's got to be said, the women MPs smashed it. Stella Creasy, who won the debate in the first place, Jess Phillips, Anna Soubry, crikey, even Maria Miller, I'm looking at you. Northern Ireland Secretary Karen Bradley has said that government MPs will get a free vote if the Commons does consider legislation, although Theresa May seems more better to keeping the DUP apple cart upright and clinging to power than women's rights. Now I can't see any surprise faces either. In short, the government is currently upholding that this is a devolved matter, and Westminster should not impose its will. Creasy, however, is calling for parts of the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act, the legislation that still governs abortion in Northern Ireland, to be repealed, stating her proposal would respect devolution by creating a gap in the law for Stormont politicians to fill. On Thursday, the 7th of June, the Supreme Court rules whether Northern Ireland's abortion law breaches women's rights by not allowing abortions in cases of sexual crime and fatal fetal abnormalities. The conversation is happening. There is a lot more to be done, but everything to play for. And last week, we chatted to some excellent women in the know. Let's start with the good stuff. On May the 25th, Ireland did its women proud and voted to repeal the Eighth Amendment. And, well, I'll let Hannah explain the next bit. Who would have thought when we booked Marion Keys to be at this event, I would be able to find myself saying, Marion, tell me what you think about the Eighth Amendment being repealed. Yeah! Uh, 
like I've done it personally. Thank you so much. Yes, it was me. Uh, yeah, I am overjoyed and I'm incredibly touched that it matters to you and that you know about it and that you care. Uh, really, it's, it's been the most momentous thing that has ever happened to me, either politically or personally. Um, and what has been so wonderful about it was that it wasn't led by any political party or, you know, any kind of vested interests. It was just ordinary women. It was a grassroots feminist movement that just, you know, gathered energy and told, told their stories and got people on board. And, you know, the entire campaign was crowdfunded. You, you know, there was no money from, you know, outside agencies. So it's been the most kind of joyous example of people power and you know in a world like after the Trump election and after I'm sorry to mention it Brexit you know where it feels like democracy is for sale to the highest bidder it was just wonderful to have a you know a political situation that seems to be bucking the trend that the power was given back to ordinary people so I think no it means an awful lot for Irish women but I'm hoping that it kind of inspires all of us you know across the world to kind of think you know, I matter, my voice matters, my energy matters, my opinion matters, and I'm going to try and make the world a better place. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Any message for Theresa May on Northern Ireland? <laughs> um, you're, not going to, you're not going to be able to please the DUP. You know, find, find some other way of uh, propping up your government or else just call an election because um, they are, um, they're worse than the Catholics and that's saying something. Um, it's hard to believe, I know, but they are actually more archaic and more cruel and uh, that really takes some doing. <laughs> Luckily, she's a big fan of the podcast so she will hear that. <laughs> I really wanted to be in Dublin or Ireland when the results came in because just to to get some of that atmosphere. So, second best thing. What was it like? Uh, listen, I'm really sorry about this, but I wasn't there. What the fuck? It's awful. <gasps> oh I'll tell you, God. I Why was made for work. I ha it was the most terrible timing. I had to come over here for work on Friday. So, um... I wasn't there, and I tell you, it killed me. I was absolutely gutted uh, to not be there. And, you know, I was invited to, uh, to a thing in Dublin Castle and everything, and I couldn't go. And, um, yeah, like, I was at the Bath Literary Festival on Saturday, and, you know, I had agreed to it long before the, uh, the date was set for the referendum. And, you know, I didn't think that I could kind of say... I'm sorry, lads, all of you who've bought tickets, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not coming. But, and also, there was the fear that it would be a no. Yeah. And to be honest, I don't think I could have bared to be in Ireland for it. But um, like you, I would have loved to have been there. I re and I, I'm really touched that, that you would have, um, would have liked it. Come anyway, we're having a march. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, seriously, we're having a march on the 30th you of September. The, the, a march on the 30th of September to, you know, and it's the final march because we were having marches every September for the past since, I think, 2013, you know, to try and kind of raise awareness. But this is just a celebratory one. Come over, you can stay with me. I've got two spare bedrooms. Seriously, you're both welcome. No, well, truly. That, no, because that, that does seem somewhat typical of the English to just turn up to the, the party march. <laughs> 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 no, but you, you did out. the work. <laughs> yeah, that's a yes. 
So yeah, it's beyond great and everything, and we are very excited to be going to Marion's house in September. You did all hear that, right? But there is still a lot we need to do right now. We got this excellent broad on the phone to tell us more. Hello, I am joined over the phone by the absolutely excellent human that is Mara Clark, founder of the Abortion Support Network. Hi, Mara. Hi, thanks for that lovely um, and, and, and effusive introduction. <laughs> well, thanks for doing all the stuff that means it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's a group effort, a group effort. Thank you so much for talking to us because I bet you haven't come up for air since the 8th was repealed. No, uh, in fact, I was I was in Dublin over the weekend and while the 8th was being repealed, Abortion Support Network is still getting calls from women who need our help. It's been super emotional and so we're so happy we're so thrilled i was actually speechless for a day if you couldn't believe that (laughs) the atmosphere and the feeling of joy i guess that kicks in but i think there's still a lot left to do right yeah i mean the, the the momentous thing that happened was that ireland voted to remove the bit of the constitution that gives a fetus an equal right to life as the woman carrying the fetus or pregnant person carrying the fetus and while that is exceptional, um, it has done nothing to change the ability to access an abortion in the Republic of Ireland. So for now, the abortion law is still what it was, which is that you can only have an abortion if you can prove that the pregnancy is imminently threatening your life, including from suicide. So the next step is that Ireland needs to draft abortion legislation and pass abortion legislation and then implement provision of abortion. So there's a lot of steps between uh, between here and provision. So, of course, women are still traveling. I would say women are still traveling, um, given the fact that the time frame that they're talking about for the legislation to be, in effect, the end of the year, it's not like somebody can be like, oh, I'm pregnant now, I'll just wait until... <laughs> so I can get an abortion up the road. Hopefully nobody does that. So, yes, women are still traveling. In fact, we have been busier than normal at the minute with a higher percentage of clients who are beyond the first trimester, which makes the procedure far more expensive and need to be carried out over two days. We gave them over £3,000 in grants last week alone. So women are still traveling and will continue to do so until provision is set up in Ireland. And also the legislation the government has talked about uh, putting in would only allow termination um, on request up to 12 weeks and in very, very, very limited circumstances beyond 12 weeks. So we're expecting that at least 600 women a year will still need to travel, either because they're over 12 weeks gestation or because they have fallen through the cracks of the law. Uh, which always happens with any with any abortion law. And um, so all the people are like, so Abortion Support Network can close now, right? It's like, no, <laughs> we're hoping to be less needed. You know, we hope that the number of calls we get from the Republic of Ireland slow down considerably once legislation is in place, but we will always be here for the people who fall through the cracks. And that means that we need to keep throwing money in your direction, right? Oh, we'll take the money. We love the money. Um, we are we are completely funded. Yeah, <laughs> we are completely funded by private individuals, including what makes me so happy. Um, some of our former clients, uh, once they're back on their feet, they come to us and uh, set up standing orders or make a one-off donation. I have to say, one of the most emotional things that happened 
in Dublin over the weekend is, is a number of women. I, I have this shirt in the front says pro-choice hugs here and the back has the abortion support network logo and it says we fund abortions and five women actually identified me by that shirt and, and sort of outed themselves to me as mm. ASN clients. It was really, um, yeah, it was because you do this, I've been doing this for a long time, we've been doing this for a long time, and, 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 you know, we sort of have to maintain a little bit of, a little bit of distance, or else we just cry all the time. Yeah. And um, it was really, it was a really powerful thing to have, to have women be like, thank you. And, and, but it's not thanking me, it's thanking all the people who have funded us and given their time, and their energy and their effort towards helping women and pregnant people access health care. Yeah, it's, it's been a really emotionally turbulent time. And has the campaign and the subsequent result, has it boosted the coffers a little bit? And do you think that's why you've been busier? Because obviously it will have boosted awareness of you as well. We launched a campaign on um, Sunday saying, you know, like, yes, 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 but... <laughs> so, like, yes, we repealed the 8th and that's amazing. But right now nothing has changed. And so there's still going to be nine women a day traveling and up to five women a day accessing uh, safe but illegal early medical abortion pills from the Internet. So, uh, yes, I'm happy to say we have had some donations in. I don't think we've been hugely busier than before. I can definitely tell you, though, that there was that there was one woman who contacted us who said, yeah, I've known about this for a little while, but I was actually too busy out canvassing to come over to England, which I thought was fantastic. <laughs> The funny thing is, is that in the summer, we actually will, we will hear from women who have several children who contact us in September to say, yeah, I found out I was pregnant in July, but I had to wait for the kids to go back to school. All of these things highlight why it was so important to repeal the eighth, because you can't, in quotes, just travel. You know, it's yeah. not it's not so easy to, to get on a plane and leave your country and come up with the money and find somebody to watch your kids and and everything else. This is such a global phenomenon, and I really hope that this inspires other countries to, um, especially other European countries like Poland and Malta and Gibraltar, to liberalize their laws. And if they don't, well, let's just say that when our phone starts ringing less from Irish clients, we've got our eyes on you. Yes, go get them. I mean, you shouldn't have to, but I'm glad you're there to do that. I wanted to ask you about America, actually. I know you've been over here for such a long time, but in Ohio, there, there's legislation slated to bring it down to six weeks, I think. Do you think they'll be looking at Ireland and going, this is a brilliant idea, we need to push this through, or will it give them pause, or is it just totally different over there? America's a big place, yeah. and I've been horrified to see how many not abortion access has taken in in many, many, many states. I mean, we get the very occasional, very occasional victory. Um, but it just seems like there's been more and more and more push toward restriction. And I think what happens is they ask for ridiculous things like let's ban abortion beyond six weeks so that if they ask for something slightly less, draconian it will seem reasonable by comparison yeah 
And I know there's actually uh, the National Network of Abortion Funds in the U.S., which is a network of over 70 organizations like ASN. And ASN is actually a member. And they are, they are needed more than ever. Because when you think about it, okay, women in Ireland have to travel to England, but America's a huge place. There's like five states that have one clinic left. Wow. And wow. Um, one of those states is Mississippi. One is South Dakota. And, and then they put extra things on like, oh, you must have a 72-hour wait period, which is something that Ireland is considering as well. So yeah. if your closest clinic is 300 miles from your house and you have to get 300 miles to the clinic, see the doctor, and then wait 72 hours, three days before you have the procedure, it just, it just knocks because what do you do with your kids during that time? How do you get the time off work if you're working? Yeah. Can you afford the petrol to, to get from point A to point B um, in addition to the cost of the abortion? It's just sort of layer after layer after layer of obstacle. And all I can keep saying is these obstacles only impact the poor. You know, the poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable are, are the only people who are ever truly and, and most, well, everybody's affected, but... You know, if you or I got pregnant, and um, you and I both have passports and credit cards. Yep. I'm, I'm making assumptions about you. But, you are uh, correct to make both you, of those assumptions. Just, <laughs> you know, and also you and I, I would say, both have people in our lives that we could be like, oh, my God, I'm pregnant and I need some money for an abortion. Can you help me? So we, we're, the, we're the lucky ones. Absolutely. And what drove me to this work in the first place, and I think what drives the majority of our, our donors and volunteers is that sense of unfairness and our anger at the delusion of people who are against abortion, who think that these, that taking these measures and, and making these restrictions ever stops abortion. It only ever stops abortion for the poor. Any message for Northern Ireland and to the, well, there isn't really a government at the moment, but to Theresa May and then to the women of Northern Ireland? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say the the Wonder Women who make up Alliance for Choice, uh, they haven't been resting on their laurels in the entire time I've known them, and they've they've been around for longer than I've been on the scene. And I know that there's a uh, a rally planned on the 10th of June. Ooh. I think it's time. Let's let's make it fair, and let's uh, let's get it in Northern Ireland. It's time, Mara. I'm sorry that it sounds like you'll never be out of a job, but thank you so much for all the amazing hard work that you've done and just for your presence and, and work in the campaign as well. Thank you so much. Well, it's, it really is a group effort. I am just the fortunate mouthpiece, but thank you for your, for your coverage of the issue. It's been, it's been, it's been great to see how many people have been finally realizing how important this is so thank you so i actually managed to get one of those wonder women from alliance for choice that mara mentions on the blower which was quite the feat because they are slammed at the moment here's danielle roberts telling me what's what in that particular part of the uk and why there doesn't need to be a referendum before change can happen alliance for choice campaigns for the decriminalization of abortion so we're based in northern ireland but we campaign across the border so we were part of the together for yes campaign and the, the referendum to repeal late and we also work with organizations across the uk like abortion rights and further afield we're part of inroads global and some groups in poland and things so it's a, it really is a global and international struggle because there's plenty of people who aren't being able to access reproductive justice our focus here is to decriminalize abortion because northern ireland 
still has the 1861 Act as our main act. We don't have the 1967 Act. So abortion is only available if people are at a serious risk of their life or health being permanently damaged. So only 13 people met the criteria last year for illegal abortion. Meanwhile, over 700 travelled to England. And obviously earlier this year was Sela Creasy brought in the fact that women in Northern Ireland can use their NHS over in England to get an abortion on the NHS, but still no, no having that in Northern Ireland. So up until the funding came in, people were having to travel and pay privately at clinics up to £2,000. Mm-hmm. So the the funding has come from the Equalities Office. It's not coming out of the health budget. Oh. Um, so the funds, yeah, now people who travel can get their treatment paid for. And there's also a means-tested grant for people on low incomes and on certain benefits or if they're under 18 to help pay for travel costs. But in general, people have to pay for their own travel costs too. And travelling isn't an option for everybody if you're in a controlling relationship or you're in precarious employment. And a lot of people who have abortions already have children. So um, there's childcare arrangements. So travelling really isn't an answer. Um, it's very helpful now that the funding is there because before we had people being criminalised simply because they, they didn't have enough money to travel to England. Whereas now that's been alleviated somewhat. Yeah, it's not ideal because it could be taken away again. So it's great that we have it at the minute, but we're not banking on it. Um, hopefully it doesn't get taken away, but it's it's very much at the, the whim of the government, whether they keep funding that, whether the Treasury keeps um, topping up that pot. So it's certainly not the answer. We have now potentially the option where people, once legislation is passed in the South, um, people potentially can travel to the Republic of Ireland as well to access care. There's already been suggestions that that should be made available to people in Northern Ireland, whether that's privately funded or whether there's an arrangement in place for funding. We just don't know yet. But potentially people could be getting on a bus or a train down to Dublin or a plane over Manchester and getting care instead of getting it here. The risk of criminal prosecution isn't just theoretical at all in Northern Ireland. There's one going to the Supreme Court at the moment, isn't there, about a woman who procured pills over the internet for yeah. a 15-year-old? Yeah, so she got pills for her daughter and um, she's taken a judicial review of the decision to prosecute her, arguing that it's not in the public interest. But she's not the only one. We've had um, another three people before the courts. We had a woman who was given a suspended sentence after her housemates reported her for using abortion pills. Mm-hmm. She was in a situation where she wasn't able to afford to travel, so hopefully that would be avoided now because of the funding. Then we also had a man and a woman who were given a caution because it's not just actually causing their own abortion, it's helping someone So whether that's a friend or family member or a medical practitioner, they are risking breaking the law too, and the maximum penalty is life imprisonment. So it is... A law that's been acted on. We also have had raids of activist homes and workplaces. So on International Women's Day last year, while we were at a Strike for Choice event oh, nice, um, nice. outside City Hall, yeah, so we were at Strike for Choice. Angela Davis was over to speak as well. So we were at Strike for Choice, meeting to go in to hear Angela Davis speak. And meanwhile, they were raiding an artist's workshop, looking for abortion pills and instruments. So not even just pills, but instruments, um, which is just ludicrous. They didn't find anything, but very definitely the law's been acted on. But at the same time, Alliance for Choice have had 200 or so people have signed a letter to confess to either taking the pills themselves or helping people to, and nobody's been prosecuted. There was also three women handed themselves into police stations and weren't prosecuted. So it's very strange that law's being enforced in some cases and not in others. It's really 
had a chilling effect on the medical profession because they are interpreting the law so strictly now that we've seen numbers fall from around 100 a year um, legal abortions, which are only those cases where it's a serious, permanent or long-term risk to life or health. We've seen that fall from around 100 to just 13 last year and it sort of halved year on year. So we've really seen the impact on that on the medical professionals too. They're being restricted in delivering the care that they should be able to. I've heard a lot of calls or seen a lot of stuff on Twitter where people seem to think Northern Ireland should have a referendum, obviously buoyed up by the success of the referendum in the Republic of Ireland. But that's not necessary, is it? Could you talk us through what is needed to change the law in Northern Ireland? Yeah, we don't need a referendum. The difference with the South was it was a constitutional change. So they needed a referendum because that's their constitutional reform mechanism. At the minute, both Stormont and Westminster have the power to legislate. Stormont hasn't sat for nearly 18 months. So um, we don't really have any anything happening there. Just recently, they published a report that was commissioned before the collapse, recommending that there be changes for cases where there's a fatal fetal abnormality, so where there's something seriously wrong, because even in those cases, people are forced to travel or to continue um, with the pregnancy, whether they want to or not. We need people to be supported whatever choice they make, and at the minute, they don't have a choice. Stormont is potentially looking like it's recommending change for that. Um, the Stormont Assembly hasn't sat in its current makeup, so we have been speaking to politicians and we know that there's a significant number of support, at least limited reform, so for cases of FFA or where there's a sexual crime. We know there's a majority support that um, or have indicated they would support that. Mm-hmm. The other option is Westminster. So while abortions devolved under criminal justice, because it's a criminal justice matter, not a healthcare one, it's devolved to Stormont and has been since 2010, but the responsibility for human rights obligations sits at Westminster. So CEDAW have put out a report saying that the current abortion law is a grave and systematic violation of our human rights and encouraged Westminster to act, saying that devolution should not be a barrier because they have a duty to uphold our human rights. So we've been lobbying Westminster to try and get legislation put in there because they've got the power to do it, they just haven't. And previous attempts have been thwarted. And also with Theresa May and the Conservatives climbing into bed with the DUP, that seems to be putting a proper barrier in place, which obviously Theresa May doesn't have the balls to climb over. Well, we already have cross-party support for um, bringing in change. So there's a number of prominent um, Conservative ministers and former ministers that have said they support Westminster acting. Some of them have called for a referendum, but hopefully they've um, listened to the response and realised that that's not wanted or needed here Mm -hmm. because it wouldn't be anything more than a glorified opinion poll. We don't need one of those because we've got plenty that show that there are um, majority support for change in the public anyway. The Life and Time Survey, so the Northern Ireland Life and Time Survey is an academically rigorous piece of work carried out between Ulster University and Queen's University in Belfast and it shows that there's 70% of people. I was going to say it's about 70%, isn't it? That's, I mean, it's more than the referendum in Ireland. Yeah, well, 70% of people think it should be a healthcare matter, not a criminal one. So we also have Amnesty commissioned um, a call with Melbourne Brown um, a number of years ago, and it found um, significant um, support for change too. So we don't need a referendum to tell us the public won't change because we already know the public won't change. Also, the levels of support that we have had have have rocketed over the past few years and even since the referendum result because it seems to be now it's okay to say you're pro-choice. You sort of have to to test the waters and sort of slowly introduce the idea you're pro-choice maybe 10 years ago or and then we've had a number of stories that have happened and it's become a, a political issue. It's something that gets talked about at hustings and things like that now. 
it's in political manifestos and then with the referendum in the south I was surprised at the result I was canvassing and a lot of people didn't want to talk to us but it turns out they were quite yeses not quite noes oh that's really interesting so, yeah so now I think there's been a shift in that people realize actually it's more likely the person I'm talking to is pro-choice we have had like our we've nearly doubled our twitter followers we've had 10 times more march orders than a normal week uh-huh. um like i know it's it's not like probably going to stay like this but um the amount of support we've had and personally the amount of friends and family that have been sort of commenting on statuses or sending me messages and welcoming the result has been quite surprising does it feel People hopeful who, yeah it really does it really feels like changes is, is coming and that we're we've got lots of ways of doing it we can we can keep lobbying locally um, for change um, in the hopes that when Stormont comes back, politicians are ready to take it on. And there's some very supportive politicians. The, the Green Party and People for Profit both have decriminalisation policies. UUP and Alliance have um, conscience votes. And we know that there's some very vocal um, members in those parties who support decriminalisation. Just um, before the referendum, Belfast City Council passed a motion to the local government passed a motion saying that they endorsed decriminalisation of abortion. So there are shifts happening locally. And then with the CEDAW report coming out at Westminster, then maybe that's going to urge them to actually be courageous and step in and think about human rights instead of staying in power. There is such a spotlight on Northern Ireland at the minute that it feels like everybody knows what's happening. We've yeah. always known what was happening and we've been... <laughs> shouting about it but now people are listening what can people in england wales scotland and anyone listening do to help you get this put through so we have a joint letter with um bpass and the fpa and a few other organizations on the bpass website they're using um hashtag now for ni on twitter Mm -hmm. as well so if you search that on twitter you'll find their letter so you can write to your mp wherever you are in the uk to urge them to support um, change coming from westminster so that's something that would be helpful to um, put pressure on MPs. By merch, also, so that we're helping you with some funds, right? <laughs> yeah, that would be great. And um, we've got merchandise on our website, so it's Alliance for Choice. It's the number four. And we also have a lot of articles on there. So sort of just educate yourself on what the law is, on why we don't need a referendum, the fact that we're so different to the rest of the UK. But also, the 1957 Act isn't great. It still criminalises people. Yeah. It only provides a defence. So get involved with Abortion Act UK as well and start trying to change the law everywhere. Our Twitter is all for choice, so A-L-L number four choice. And we're on Facebook as well and Instagram. So that's, yeah, keep up to date with what we're doing. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we fire an ace at hearsay and embrace supporting our fellow females as we discuss all things women's sport. And yes, of course, I'm referring to Serena Williams, who gave a tremendous press conference at the French Open this weekend, ahead of facing oft-referred-to nemesis Maria Sharapova in a fourth-round showdown. And as I often point out, I can't see into the future, but you will of course know the outcome of this by now, Wednesday, if you're listening to it on Wednesday 
or Thursday. I mean, any time after the time at which I'm recording this, you're going to know the outcome. So I'm not going to dwell too much on the ins and outs of the tournament, except to say I've watched a lot of it, and it's been great to see Serena back in action. I'm definitely not going to dwell on Joe Conta's performance or her media meltdown for reasons relating to Serena's press conference. Williams was asked at the press conference about a book Sharapova wrote while she was banned for doping a couple of years ago. Shush, she needs that angina medication. She didn't get the memo. She didn't get any of them. In said book, Sharapova implies that Williams has beaten her in 19 of their 21 matches because she was fired on by the rage of having been beaten by Sharapova in the 2004 Wimbledon final and that she apparently had a little cry in the locker room afterwards. Williams pointed out in the conference that as a professional athlete, winning is rather the name of the game and it's not that weird to want to win or indeed to be upset if you don't. Shit, sometimes I cry at Whiskers adverts. No, really, the ones with the kittens. Oh, God. Williams responded to what she called disappointing hearsay in the book, stating that she didn't have any negative feelings towards Sharapova, and she added, I feel negativity is taught. Women, especially, should bring each other up. I feel like we should encourage each other, and the success of one female should be the inspiration to another. I always get inspired by other women that are doing well. I mean, she ruined it a bit by saying she was well chuffed to have Mike Tyson there in her corner on the, at her third round match on Saturday. After all, who wouldn't want a convicted rapist in their corner? Shakes head slowly. I'm absolutely baffled by the general acceptance of Mike Tyson, but um, that's for another time. I mean, what Serena said, notwithstanding support of Mike Tyson, is bang on, isn't it? I'm going to raise a, I'm going to raise an eyebrow a little bit about the context in which she said it, i.e., clearly to do Sharapova down. But fuck it, the sentiment is 100% correct in my humble opinion. Now let's move on to changes in the FA Women's Super League, in which we have now heard the results of applications for the newly structured first and second tiers. The top flight will consist of Arsenal, Birmingham City Ladies, Brighton and Hove Albion, Bristol City Women, Chelsea Women. Yes, they changed their name from Ladies, which is nice, isn't it? Everton Ladies, Liverpool Ladies, Manchester City Women, Reading Women and Yeovil Town Ladies, who you'll remember were in danger of losing their place and I'm chuffed to bits that this has been avoided. And also West Ham United Ladies who move up from the second tier. In the second tier, we have some newbies, as well as these seven existing clubs. We have Lewis FC, who you might remember from the news because they pay their women the same as their men. Damn straight, Lewis men are not in the second tier. Manchester United, unsurprisingly, made the cut. Leicester and Sheffield United also joined the second tier, as well as Charlton Athletic women. Come on, you Reds. Yes, I support Charlton Athletic. What of it? We're going to talk some more about that nearer the start of the season. Just to mention quickly, I went to the Women's Sports Trust Be a Game Changer Award ceremony the other week, a tremendously inspiring event it was as well, and in which I learned that there are only six professional female boxers in the UK. So maybe I should go professional, because those odds aren't bad, are they? I mean, they are exceptionally bad odds if we're talking about gender parity, but, you know... The Women's Sports Trust are looking for brand partners and individual allies to help them promote women's sport and campaign for better coverage, pay all that stuff we like. So if you work for a big corporate bastard with a few quid to spare and the desire to look woke AF, or you just want to know more about it, please do have a look at their website, womensporttrust.com. If you would like to communicate with me, please do so at InspireGen on Twitter. I'll be back next week chatting to the very excellent Kate Borsay from the Offside Royal podcast about the upcoming World Cup. We're going to get you through it. It's going to be okay. 
Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. And we've got a special guest in the room this week. We have got a Julia Ray side. Hello. <laughs> just one, just a. Uh, just the, There's another three outside I was the door. Say, I tried to book another one, but uh, apparently they were all taken. <laughs> Jesus, Hannah. <Yeah>. Sorry. <laughs> Dunleavy, what Disney did you do this week? This week I did 2004's, I know, The Incredibles. What? It's a Pixar-produced Disney released, which is always a relief when we're doing these, <laughs> to be honest. It received an absolutely rapturous welcome, and people were clamouring for a sequel almost immediately. That sequel is coming out of the cinema next week, which means, for the first time ever, there is a purpose to Don't Leave Me Does Disney. If you might have to go and see the second one, and you haven't seen the first one... Maybe you want to listen to this. A mere 14 years later. A mere 14 years later. I'm glad they rushed later. that through. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so I suppose if you're all here, I better ask. Well, actually, this bit I've been looking forward to for at least an hour. So who actually managed to watch it? I did. <gasps> hey! <laughs> Jane, how did you find your first Disney film? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Are you I've, surprised it weren't real people? I've got thoughts about the real, non-real people. But anyway, yeah. No, I watched it. Great. Mick? I have seen it a couple of times before. I didn't get to rewatch it, so I'm going off memory. <laughs> Julia? I've, I've seen it billions and millions of times. Um, I want to be Edna Mode. I kind of wish I was Edna Mode. And, um, and Brad Bird, he makes it. He, he made my other favourite film, which is The Iron Giant. So I'm fully on board. Great. Did you like it, Hannah? Yeah, I did. And it's a good job because this film is two hours. Well, it's five minutes off two hours long, which is an incredibly long time to make children sit down and watch something and but not if lose you can, interest. If you can do that for two hours, you're basically the parents' new god, right? Yeah, and there's a lot going on in it. It's got way too much plot for me to even start to go into from that point of view. Home on the range level <laughs> of plot. It's actually, it's really dark. It's actually probably the darkest one, maybe apart from Up, which is dark as well because it's predominantly about death. But it's actually quite violent. And ironically, for a family of superheroes... It's the most realistic family, I think, that Disney's ever come close to portraying. So there's a lot to like about it. I do have a couple of issues with it, but for the most part, I did actually really enjoy it. And I have to say, I watched it at 12 o'clock last night, and it it took me till 2 o'clock in the morning, and I wrote it next to a crazy old woman on the train, (laughs) and yet neither of those things really bothered me, which shows that I quite enjoyed it, yeah. At the mention of having a few issues, Julia's pulled out some knuckle dusters. I'm not very happy. I'm here under false pretenses. <laughs> <laughs> what possible faults can you find with it? Well, just in a kind of plot pricey, it opens with the traditional origin story, which is, bearing in mind these are superheroes, it's actually quite it's longer than the origin story for most Disney. But also, that's probably why this film is so long. It's about 15 minutes, 20 minutes before the actual sort of story kicks in. Mr Incredible, it opens with him busy saving the world and during this period of he encounters a young man who describes himself as his number one fan which goes about as well it does as when Partridge meets his number one fan <laughs> or that dude from Misery meets his, his uh, number one fan. I'm your number one fan. Uh, he sort of causes a disaster and, and then he saves someone he, he catches a man who is attempting to commit suicide which again, like I say, when I said this was dark it kind of is. Yeah. And then what happens is all of these people that are injured or have been saved then decide to sue Mr Incredible or, as it sort of turns out, the government uh, for their injuries. And they have a... Uh, I'll put, not a what was the, what's the word I'm looking for? 
come on old lady um, <laughs> and anyway so superheroes basically have to stop what they're doing and they all go into what appears to be some sort of witness protection program like basically. a moratorium on moratorium that's exactly the word I was looking for yes nice um, word then we leap forward 15 years into the future. It basically picks up where Goodfellas left off. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's actually something that they kind of talk about in like some of the Avengers films, this idea that you can't just trash it, which is actually kind of my problem with a lot of the Avengers films, is like you think, God, millions of people must have died in that disaster, <laughs> and they basically haven't mentioned it, but they do tackle that in later Avengers films. So 15 years now, they're living under these secret identities. With He's married to Helen, who is... Previously, Elastigirl. Holly Hunter. Who is played by mm. Holly Hunter, who oh. like just the get, almost gets five stars just for having Holly Hunter in it yeah, before we even start. She doesn't do any crying because Holly Hunter crying is one of my favourite things <laughs> in the world ever. That raise in Arizona, <laughs> sobbing that she does. Maybe is, Incredibles 2 will bring that up for maybe. you. Maybe. So they've had three kids now who also have superpowers and have been made to hide their powers. And he obviously misses it. And he and his friend Frozone which is like, God, that sounds like the most off-brand superhero like that you buy on a market, doesn't it? It's got baby bandages inside it or something. <laughs> they, are actually, an they, they are actually moonlighting by listening into police scanners because they just can't stop helping people. And basically because everybody's really dissatisfied with this life, and this is the point. Mr Incredible now living as Bob. He has a really boring job and he wants to help people and he keeps getting in trouble for helping people. Helen has really been reduced to just being a mother and a, a housekeeper, which she is not very happy with. Basically what happens, he's, he then, Mr Incredible, gets contacted by a mystery woman and gets sort of dragged into this thing, ends up on an island, and his wife has to turn up and save him, basically. Which is pretty cool, isn't which it? Which is cool. very cool. <sighs> oh, there are dissenting. Mm. This all links back to his number one fan from years ago, who I have to say I am really torn by, as always, because he's played by Jason Lee, who... I love, however, have very strong feelings about his um, well, it's about Scientology. Let's just put yeah. it there. Oh, is his, he one of those? Yeah, yeah. he is. Shame. Oh. Um, anyway, it's got some really, really great things about it, and it's got a couple of things I don't like. The great mm. things about it, it's actually funny. Edna Mode, it's like you say, it's just incredible. Played by Brad Bird. Yeah, Brad Bird does her voice, and she's yeah. got the most incredible voice. Hasn't yeah, she? she sounds exactly like the um, King Kim Jong Kim Jong Il character in Team Kim, America. Kim America yeah. That I so much so I actually had to look it up <laughs> to see if it was <laughs> not, if not. Capes. Is that not Margaret Chow? Does Margaret Chow do that? <laughs> the one in Team America. I think it's just them, isn't it? I no, don't is know. it probably Trey yeah, Parker? Yeah, Mm. Oh, she because she does it in Thirty Rock, doesn't she? The things that are good about it, yeah, it's funny. I have to say, I think it's a really realistic portrayal of a family in that they actually argue all the fucking time. They are always arguing in it, and there are bits where they're actually full on arguing in front of the kids, and later have to apologise to the kids for freaking them out. Um, I think there's like a little entry point into Brad Bird's mind because a lot of the thesis sort of around this is the idea that they are being forced to pretend that they're normal and they can't use their superpowers, and the guy that is the baddie, the number one fan, um, who is like later styles himself as a superhero called Syndrome's point is that he wants to try and make everybody a superhero so nobody is special. So it feels like Brad Bird's been to one too many sports days where <laughs> where he's been forced to like clap all the kids. So I don't know quite how I feel hey, about that. Hey, you're all but... winners. Hannah, we're yeah. all winners. Helen, I think, is an absolutely fantastic character. I think Jen's pulling... Jen's uh, dissenting again. Jen's, uh, Jen's pulling a, a face, but she's... 
what I love about her is the way she speaks to her kids. Mm. There's a bit where her kids get blown out of a sky of a helicopter. They fall into the sea. They are freaking the hell out. And she says, get a grip. <laughs> she's brilliant. She's having a row with them as she's trying to form her elastic body into a speedboat yeah. to rescue them from the water while they're kind of like bitching and bickering each other. So it's, you're right. But, there's all these silly arguments. But then when he does it, and he does it, she says to him, you're a trooper. <laughs> and, and so she's like, she, she dishes out praise where it's it's... It's due. Like I say, it's really violent. It doesn't like it doesn't half ass these deaths. There's like a guy flies into a mountain and explodes. Syndrome gets sucked into the thing engine of a plane. Now obviously you don't see the blood. No, you don't see but it. it's not it's like cartoon. But it's not like that bit in other Disney films where someone just falls out of a window and you never like see them again. There is a poor cat an implication <laughs> of what happens. I think there are good female characters. I think that Edna's brilliant. I think Violet they do a thing with Violet where she's the daughter, right? she start, the daughter. She starts off a bit gothy and she does girly up a bit, but oh, she doesn't brilliant. girly up the whole way. Mm. She she doesn't. She tucks her hair behind her ears. That's yeah, about she's it. transformed. Not she like comes out of her shell. Exactly. It's more. Uh, it's less a physical transformation and more a sort of personal yeah. transformation, which is really great. Other things that I don't like. Can we find out why Jen doesn't like? She well, it literally might be. folded her arms like one earth. It might be what you are about to say. But I think Mr. Incredible was a fucking prick. Well, he's it, not. He's oh, oh, he's rubbish. And it is. I did think, oh, this is a bit Goodfellas-esque. It's like, and now I'm just a nobody. I'm just a schmuck yeah. or whatever. And he's like, oh, it's not, you know, I'm not special anymore. Oh, I'm so emasculated by having to be. He's a shit dad. He's a shit husband. Yeah, but he he's gets to the end of the story and realises that. And he's, yeah, all right, he's... You know, he has redemption or whatever. I thought they really fucking missed a trick, actually, by not making Mrs. Incredible out. I really wanted it to be like some sort of true lies kind of thing. I was going to mention true lies because obviously ah. Big Arnie fun. And it just Jen. wasn't. See, I thought it was going to be off. the fact there was a montage, but no Phil Collins music. Well, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> that's so what, I, I an haven't issue. watched it for a while and now I'm upset. That yeah. They missed a trick there. Yeah. Well, the new film, though, don't they reverse the roles? He's Daddy Daycare and she's going out superhero. Well, she should be because she's, she's really good at this. My, my two, my two major film. problems are, one is her costume, which is, I mean, she she's a really odd size and shape. Um, and that's not just when she's blown up as a speedboat. I mean, she has like a, an arse that Kim Kardashian it's great. would like. But she wears like knee high, like leather, uh, actually thigh high leather, no leather boots. No capes. She does have a no possibly capes. small feet and really big hips. She is, she, the way she's drawn is, is kind of, it actually harks back to old Disney and it is like sexualized. The other thing that I've got a problem with is that she punches another woman in the face for looking at her husband. <laughs> Which, if you were a superhero and you could, you would, wouldn't yeah, you? She's I don't, a baddie woman. She's not like a good woman. I don't know. She's like a little bit. She starts off as a baddie, but she's she's a little bit. Nah, she threw a lot in with an evil, like a sort of crazy man. Like she she deserves yeah. everything she gets. Yeah. See, I'm not so sure. There's how like women fight in women against women, but and over, over a man. man. Yeah. Well, because the plot line originally over a is shit man. <laughs> <laughs> he's not. He's just misunderstood. But when he keeps going missing because he's doing this secret job for this secret new client, uh, she finds the wife finds like a blonde hair on his jacket and the, the plot is that she thinks he's having an affair she thinks that because he it's, I think it's quite realistic he's so disillusioned with his new boring life he's hitting midlife of course he's shagging a blonde that's what she thinks it, so it I think is, when yeah. she meets this woman obviously in a slightly different context she's already got all that stored yeah. up rage about you know you trying to crack onto my husband and when she finally meets the woman she's in her husband's arms because he's saying thank you for turning on the baddie and rescue me so it's like it 
you know, it's she's, worth she's, mentioning. She's ready she knows her stuff. Julie is the only married woman in the room. Yeah. So. <laughs> she's maybe a lot of more I didn't buy a thread. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's not a Mr. Incredible then. Well, I mean, so if he, like the first half of the film, before he works out, yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> For the training montage. Yeah. Um, no Phil Collins. <laughs> yeah, it's got an ending and then a, a, it's got a, a fake ending and then a, 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 another drama at the end of it, which is quite clever. Yeah, I think I liked it. My favourite thing in the whole thing, and I don't know what this says about me, but um, there's a bit in it where Syndrome turns up and obviously, presumably, first turns up in the city. Let's call it New York. I don't know where it's supposed to be, but he's dressed up as a superhero and obviously it's like 15 years since they've been superheroes. So everyone's like, oh, wow, look at that. And somebody says, is he Phyronic? Right, which was the name of a superhero, apparently, in the olden days. That's not what I heard. I heard is that superhero Byronic. And I thought that would be the greatest superhero. Right, he just turns up in a really long trench coat, right? And then he just sorts it out and then he flies off to fuck his sister. I'm sure he would have It's just like one massive advert for opium. Yeah. Yeah, completely off his head. I want a superhero called Byronic. And you can hear Hannah's new podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Looking out for a hero. The Byronic Man. Yeah. <laughs> what score are you giving it? I am going to give it four and a half. Four and a half what? What? Really? Four and a half yeah. out of what? Oh, out of five. Oh, that's no, all no. right then. Yeah. Four, yeah. four, and, a half, four, four and, and a half what? Out of five. Oh, for, uh, four and a half. I literally cannot believe that Jen has watched uh, a Disney film Thanks, out mate. of five. Yeah. Wow. I mean, maybe just bump it up to five for that fact alone. Okay. And do you want to know what the other sort of good news is? There's only two Disney films left. No, there's oh. 18. What the fuck? Yeah, but it does yeah. mean we are in the final furlong throes of it. The countdown begins. Da, 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 da. What's is that the good news? Yeah, that was the good oh, news. Oh wow, there's, Jen there's pissed only... all over it, didn't she? Might <laughs> be like, what? Yeah, there's only eighteen left. Great news, guys. <laughs> <laughs> More great news next week. <laughs> That's all from us this week on the Standard Issue Podcast. I hope you've had a lovely time, and as always, we have obviously had a lovely time. We'll be back again next week with some absolute gems for you. We will have some chat about women writers on TV. We'll be talking about the upcoming men's sport, I know, but, you know, we're allowed to like men's sport too. We'll be talking about the upcoming World Cup, which I'm obviously very excited about. Also, between now and then, you can look out for Sunday Chops, which will this week be a longer version of the chat I had with Sarah Clementson from Cara, but we talk about all sorts of stuff from pornography to Harvey Weinstein to Beyonce, who doesn't really fit very comfortably in that with those particular words, but you know, whatevs. Uh, you listen to it, you'll see what I mean. Anyway, also. You'll be hearing more from the very excellent Anne Miller, who will be chatting more about books that you should read this summer. We've also got for you a playlist, which this week is in the theme of books, as per Anne's segment on the podcast. If you would like to see us with your own eyes, you can, as we talked about in this interview with Sarah earlier. You can come and see us in my hometown of Harwich, at the Harwich Festival. Harwich is in North Essex. 
FYI, in case you've never heard of it, or maybe like you just got a boat from there and you've forgotten about it since. Uh, yeah, you can come and see us there on the 30th of June, and you can we will be joined by Alison Inman, if you remember her from our podcast. She's the chair of the Chartered Institute for Housing, and she is freaking excellent. We'll also be joined by Jessica Fosterkew, the very, very excellent comedian who we absolutely adore. Also, before that, if you are in the northern region, northwest, northwest, I think, um, we will be at the Waterside Arts Theatre in Sale on the 26th of June. So it's going to be a busy freaking week for us. Um, And we will be joined by Carshares, excellent Sean Gibson, and... Coronation Street legends Show Lee Houston and Jenny McAlpine and as a massive Coronation Street fan I am pretty excited about that. Don't forget to rate and review us please on that there iTunes. It's very helpful. It means that people come and look at us and we like that because then it it's useful. Just give it a go. Five stars, yeah? Lovely jubbly. You can follow us on the Twitter. We are at Standard Issue UK. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Also, if you want to follow us individually, I am at InspiraGen, Mickey is at Mixed Noonan, and Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And sometimes we talk about things other than exploding tits. Look at Hannah's timeline, all will be revealed. That's it. Thank you very much for joining us, and all that remains for me to say is indeed, stay frosty. Standard issue for all women.